The reading for today's sermon is taken from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, how we need a fresh outpouring of your Spirit upon us to unpick and untangle these words so as to hear the voice of your Spirit and be conformed to your Son, our Lord Jesus. Open our eyes, we pray, that we may behold wonderful things, even if also fearful things in your word, and shape and change and train us, we pray, that we may leave this place differently than we entered it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. And let me add my welcome to that quite large flock of unfamiliar faces, only most of whom are attached to hands that I've managed to shake so far this morning. It's great to have you with us, and we're thrilled and uh, honoured that you've decided to join us today for Worship at All Saints. We hope that you stick around afterwards for long enough for more of us to get to know you, as I've had the privilege of doing with uh, some of you. We're in um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been working through this book for a few weeks. As we begin today, I want to take you back to the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. I want to remind you of some things he did, and I want to highlight something which is passing strange about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus preached and spoke to many, many people over a period of about three years. Huge amount of excitement he generated. Several times in the Gospels it said that great crowds followed him fascinated, thrilled, many of them, by what they heard, never having heard anything like this or met or seen anybody like this man. And yet still, in spite of it all, only a very small fraction of those people who had seen and heard Jesus actually trusted him, actually followed him, actually turned to him in repentance and faith. A small fraction of the countless, probably tens of thousands of people who heard him speak maybe hundreds of thousands over three years of his earthly ministry. Just think for a moment how absolutely astonishing that is. The second person of the triune God, God the Son, became man, took flesh, spoke and drank and ate and talked and laughed and cried with and lived among these people for years. His words were the words of God, pure and simple. To touch his hand was to touch the hand that created yours. And we all know, (laughs) but we've become so familiar, we scarcely realize that of those thousands upon thousands who heard him speak, some of them standing closer to him than you're sitting to me now, who shook his hand, who went into his house, who sat down at the table with him. In one case, he followed him around for three years, Judas Iscariot, 
a small fraction of those people actually repented and trusted the gospel. Isn't that astonishing? In the end, they just walked away. They weren't convinced, or they weren't interested, or they weren't something. It makes you think, doesn't it? And, and many of us, I guess, when we pause to think about it, ask a similar question today, which is a more muted form of the same question, you know, and perhaps you found yourself saying, well, you know, if only my friend, or if only my granddad, or if only my next-door neighbor could meet Jesus, <laughs> he'd respond a bit differently, or they'd respond a bit differently. And the lesson of history is, well, I'm not sure they would. All of which raises a somewhat troubling question, doesn't it? Like, why? What, what is it? What explanation can be given for the appalling and bewildering reality that the vast majority of people in Jesus' life who met him didn't follow him, and not everybody who hears the gospel today does so either? Why not? And the answer, I have to tell you, is quite disturbing. And it is articulated here in the reading we've just had from 2 Thessalonians. Uh, just a reminder for, well, all of us, whether you've been here in the last few weeks or not, just a reminder of the context. This is a letter by Paul, and uh, along with his companions, to a, a young church in Thessalonica in modern Greece. And you recall, I'm not going to go into detail the whole of chapter 1 and the background in the book of Acts, but you just recall the context in the first eight verses of chapter 2, where we were last week, Paul introduces this individual whom he calls the man of lawlessness, a figure from the second century, verse 3. Uh, uh, the man of lawlessness needs to be revealed. And this man of lawlessness is uh, described here as the son of destruction. In verse 8, he's the lawless one. Again, in verse 9, he's the lawless one. He's an individual probably to be identified, I think, best get if, guess if my friend and our fellow congregant, um, uh, Dr. James Jordan, is right, which he normally is, probably to be identified with the first century high priest of Israel, Ananias, who was deeply hostile to the gospel. So hostile that he persecuted the church and uh, led others in doing so. And that persecution is described here in um, verse 3 as the rebellion, literally the apostasy. And Paul writes these, this section in chapter 2. He's basically saying, look, um, the rebellion led by this man the lawless one, is certain to happen before the day of the Lord comes. So don't worry, you haven't missed it. That's basically what's happening. And that day of the Lord, you remember from last week, is the day of Jesus acting in judgment upon the old covenant structures associated with the temple and the priesthood in Israel. So that's where we were in verse 8. But which raises an obvious question, which is a kind of version of the same question that I highlighted for you a few minutes ago. Like, why? Like, the high priest of Israel, are you serious? Of all of the people who ought to have been in a position to recognize who this man is, this Jesus, what would cause him to respond in such a way? And the answer is given here. The coming of this lawless one, I think we are to tentatively identify with Ananias, Israel's high priest, well, but it's certainly some other first century leader of the Israelite people, the Jewish people in the first century is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's why he and all, all the others who follow him are not saved. They refuse to love the truth. And then Paul goes on in verse 11. Therefore, and this just makes it more difficult, so, so far it's Satan who's to blame, and then for refusing to love the truth. Therefore, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may not believe 
the truth. They may believe what is false. Isn't that astonishing? I'm afraid, um, I almost feel bad, like some of you are here at All Saints for the first time. And here you're hearing me read a passage of scripture that says, God deludes those who refuse to believe and love the truth, and Satan is at work in them to lead them astray from trusting in Jesus. Welcome to All Saints Presbyterian Church. It's not always as kind of gritty as this. I guess it's as gritty as the Bible is, and I guess we're stuck with the Word of God, right? And it seems to me that Paul's answer concerning this first century situation, why would this man and those who portrayed, displayed allegiance to him, why would they refuse to repent and trust in Christ? It actually has implications for the question we started with. Why would anybody else do the same? And there are three answers. Um, and we're going to go through them one at a time. Uh, they are troubling, uh, one or two points quite deeply philosophical and you will certainly leave here with more questions than answers, more questions than you came with, I can guarantee that. But I also think at the end, maybe by the time we get to the end, it will be sobering enough to have done us some good. So let me walk through. There are three strands to Paul's reasoning concerning why this man and why anybody else would refuse to repent and trust in Christ. The first is, as Paul says, they perished, speaking of this lawless one and those who followed him, because of the activity of Satan. Look with me verse 9. We may as well bite the bullet straight on. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity, literally by the working of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, that specific one individual, that lawless one, Satan is at work in him. That's what Paul says. Verse 10, that's then generalized to speak not just of that one individual but of others and with all wicked deception for those plural who are perishing because they plural refuse to love the truth and so be saved and then in verse 12 Paul casts the net even wider and this is the justification I think for regarding this as something that we can learn from throughout all the ages of the church verse 12 in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth somehow or other the deceiver, Satan, is to be identified as the one who is behind this. Now, this is familiar, I guess. I mean, we've all heard the parable of the sower. You remember the seed scattered in Jesus' famous parable on the path, on the rocky ground, on the thorns, and on the good soil. And it's one of the two or three parables that Jesus explicitly interprets. And he said, um, the seed on the path, well, that's taken away by the birds, and those that are on, like the seed on the path, well, that's like the word of God is snatched away by Satan. It doesn't take root in them at all. This isn't a surprise. This isn't some new Pauline innovation. This is Paul expounding by the inspiration of the Spirit what he knows from the Gospels and what Jesus taught himself. So the activity of Satan accounts to some degree, in some sense, for the unbelief of those who don't trust in Christ. Now, isn't that slightly disturbing? Uh, a, a personal malevolent being, not visible to our eyes ordinarily, uh, acting in history, in our lives, who Paul the Apostle says here is behind the unbelief of some of our friends. In a broader perspective, we might 
raise a kind of question. So Revelation 20, speaking of the millennium, meaning that long period of time that the church is now in, the period of gospel growth, is that time when Satan is bound, thrown into a pit so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. So what's Satan doing deceiving people? Well, the text says he can't deceive the nations any longer, which is true. It doesn't say that he can't do anything about individual people. If you prefer an illustration like this, um, I've often found it helpful to think of it like this. Satan is bound. Imagine him caged in the corner of a room, unable any longer to roam throughout the world deceiving the nations. It doesn't stop some people sticking their head in through the bar of the cage. <laughs> or perish the thought, being inside the cage with it. It's associated here with all power and false signs and wonders. And of course, we're familiar with some of this from Scripture. So you think of the Egyptian uh, magicians in Exodus 7 and 8 who imitated the signs and wonders that the Lord did through Moses. Or think of Simon Magus in the book of Acts, Acts 8, who uh, thought he could buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money, which would add to his kind of magical repertoire so as to be able to you know, uh, increase his uh, appearance fee in the first century kind of we're impressed with magic context. And it's really interesting because at this point you start to realize Satan is so shrewd, isn't he? C.S. Lewis, I think, has made this point. It's one of the reasons why um, I still, it probably is, no, it's not too late. Sign up for reading the Screwtape Letters again or rereading it. I'm, a bunch of people have said, yeah, we want to come and do this and we're meeting in a few weeks' time at my place, just one evening. If you want to come, you've just about you've got enough time, send me an email tomorrow, okay, no later. Um, but he points out the, the shrewdness of Satan. So in some cultures, like the ancient Greco-Roman world, which was filled with people who are suspicious and fearful of what we, in a kind of post-scientific age, call the supernatural. Well, what's Satan going to do there? He can, he can drive people to all kinds of um, false religious paths by terrifying them out of their wits with these signs and wonders. It's like in some cultures today and in, in previous decades where if somebody sees something that is dramatic and supernatural, they'll go to the witch doctor. Now, the devil doesn't mind where you go as long as you don't go to Jesus. <laughs> but of course, we, he's done a different trick in our age, hasn't he, since sort of the 1750s. Materialism and atheism have done a perfectly good job of um, keeping people away from Jesus. And the last thing Satan wants to do is to upset the apple cart by doing false signs and wonders everywhere. Because actually, if people started speaking in demonic voices like they did in the first century, in contemporary Fort Worth, the church will be filled with terrified people who just want to be saved from what they previously had denied the existence of. See, Satan is very shrewd. The reason why we perhaps don't see so much of that kind of activity today is because Satan isn't an idiot. <laughs> He doesn't want to upset the materialist apple cart, which at the moment is keeping many people out of the churches and away from Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean Satan isn't doing something. I mean, since, when was it? 1859, let the hearer understand. Just attributing everything to natural processes has been working quite well, hasn't it? But make no mistake, Paul says, they perished by the activity of Satan. Which, if that weren't disturbing enough, is only the first of three reasons that Paul the Apostle gives for this man, Ananias, and his followers' uh, refusal to repent and turning from the Lord. Uh, the second is found in, again, in verses 9 to 11. It's right there. And just look at it with me. 
verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, yeah, verse 9, and with all wicked deception, verse 10, yes. Verse 11. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion. That's the second reason. So this text unmistakably and shockingly highlights why why did this man, why do so many others not believe in Jesus? Because God has deluded them. God has sent them a strong delusion. And it actually is in keeping with how Satan works. What Paul, in effect, is doing here is saying, yeah, but what's behind Satan? I mean, to just, to, just to blame the devil, yeah, you want to then say, well, why, why does the devil do this? And who's behind him? He's not an independent being. Is he not under the sovereign authority and power of God? And the answer is yes. And so, in keeping with the fact that Satan's name means accuser and deceiver and deluder, that's what he does. The father of lies, isn't that what Jesus calls him? In keeping with that, God uses him to delude people. It's interesting, the same phrase in verse 9, the working of Satan, is used in verse 11 where it says God sends a working of delusion. The living God actively sends this satanic delusion. Uh, (laughs) Happy Lord's Day, everybody. Um, So this brings us face to face with probably the most troubling aspect of what philosophers sometimes call the problem of evil. And in philosophical terms, it can be stated like this. Uh, How can a God who is good and sovereign, that is, in control of everything, how can he allow evil things to happen? And, of course, that's the, the philosophical statement. You have these three claims, God's goodness, God's exhaustive sovereignty, and the reality of evil. Of course, the, the way that it actually hits us personally is not... Um, as a philosophical issue, most of the time, most of the time this hits us because of people we love, whom we see suffering, or because of people whom we love, who we see following in the paths of Ananias and those like him. But of course, to solve the past, solve, what am I talking about, who am I kidding? To, to begin to think rightly about the pastoral problem, we probably do need some kind of theological scaffolding. And the, the normal way that people will suggest that you break this triad is by denying one of the three corners, one of the three poles. You see, you solve the problem of evil if you say God is out of control, because, hey, you know, he couldn't do anything about the Holocaust. That's why that's become such a popular route since the mid-20th century, of course. You solve the problem of evil if you make God bad, because God is just doing nasty things, and you solve the problem of evil if you say, well, evil is an illusion that doesn't really exist, which is what a lot of Eastern philosophies do. But the Bible insists that all three are true. You're stuck with them all. I won't uh, drag us through all the text. So the problem remains. Now, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with the the painful reality that the Lord, in his sovereignty, (laughs) has led us this morning, on the day that he set aside so that we can worship him, to a text which tells us that he is behind the delusory work working of Satan. We have um, some doctrinal standards. Many of you are familiar with our doctrinal standards, which include the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith actually is kind of helpful here. Let me read a bit to you. Just to, it, This sets some parameters in place, and, and it's useful for that reason. Here goes. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Pause there. God planned and brings about it all, whatever comes to pass. And so that everyone's now thinking, yeah, but what about evil? What about sin? How's God involved in that? And the, the confession continues. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, he's not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Okay. Anybody who likes kind of 17th century English probably enjoyed that. What it basically says is God's in control of everything. God plans everything. God does everything. But he's not the author of sin. That's the phrase. And he doesn't take away secondary causes, that is to say, things within the created order. In fact, he gives them their causative power. He's the one who makes human actions do what human actions do. And he also establishes the human will. The hum- and there's a little hint about where we might go with the answer. But we're not going to go there with the answer in such a way that we're taken away from God's sovereignty because it's all planned and all done by God. Now, I, th- I think actually that's a fair statement of the answer, but it doesn't really explain it. And I wondered, okay, so how deep down this rabbit hole to go? And so, you want, I've got to tell you, okay, I squeezed the other bits of the sermon to fit this bit in. I promise. <laughs> um, well, what are we going to do? I'm gonna, we'll poke our head down the rabbit hole far enough for you to see with your little head-mounted torch, run with the illustration, it'll, it'll help, that this is not just a rabbit hole. This is a vast underground rabbit warren. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos where people do this with um, ants' nests, underground ants' nests? They'll pour molten aluminium into the top. It's a really stupid thing to do because molten aluminium is really dangerous. Molten metal is extremely dangerous. Anyway, I used to be a metallurgist a long time ago. Anyway, but you, 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 you've got this little tiny hole on the ground, like this big, and you pour the molten aluminium in the top, and then obviously it fries all the ants, which is probably a more humane way of killing them than putting those chemicals on. Anyway, and then you, after it's solidified, you dig up the cast of aluminium that it's made. And it's this massive, great big thing. Because you thought it was like a little, rab- little hole like this. Well, the same's true with rabbit warrens, and same's true with theology sometimes. When you stick your head in something, you think, oh my word. So you ready? Switch the head torch on. Let me show you. Right. And Bible and theology class students, by the way, some of you can preach along with this bit. What, what, are, the, what are the three parts of divine providence? Do you remember? No, I'm looking at you, brother. I don't know what it is. (laughs) The doctrine of divine providence is that doctrine that articulates how it is that God is in control of everything, right? It's helpful to distinguish three components of divine providence, which are called, respectively, preservation, concurrence, government. Remember now? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, but that was last term. Yeah, you're supposed to remember stuff from last term. Preservation. God keeps everything that exists existing. Uh, Revelation 4.11. By, literally, by your will, they are and were created. 
God is the one who upholds things in being. Now, this is really important because whatever that thing does, the being of that thing is good. Existence is a thing that God brought about. Existence is a thing that God sustains, and it's always good, just in itself. The fact that a thing is, and those of you who've read Augustine on evil now understand why it's so important that evil is not a thing. Yeah, it's how we describe the distortion of a thing. Yeah, evil has no ontological purchase. It has no being. Yeah, Augustine's right about that. So being is sustained by God's preserving all things. Concurrence, well, Westminster says, where is it? Here it is. Oh, that's why. I got this super small Bible, which I'm sending my other one away to be repaired, and so I can't read it. So this, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. This is now the Bible printed in words big enough for me to read. Um, thank you, John, otherwise I'm getting lost. Um, concurrence. Remember the Westminster uh, Confession says... Um, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, this is the hard bit to understand. Um, when, you, when you do something with the help of somebody else, suppose you're trying to lift something heavy, yeah? You can't do it by yourself. You get somebody else to help you. You're both causing it to be lifted, and it's 50-50, yeah? If you stop doing your bit, it will drop on the other guy's toe. That's how um, multiple causes normally work. I'm trying to lift this big piece of wood into the back of my car so I can go home and turn it into wooden bowls. Too heavy for me. I need somebody to help me. Ryan Ray comes along between us. We can shift it in there. First cause, second cause. Mistake. That's not how God interacts with our causes. It's not 50-50. It's 100% God and 100% us. God, in his providence, brings about the actions of our bodies and lives, yet in such a way that it is our actions. If it was a smaller chunk of wood, I pick it up, it's like this big because I can lift it, past a desk job, you know. <laughs> pick it up, ah, 100% me, 100% God, and it's me because God equips me to do it. You with me? concurrence. God concurs with my actions. Now, the crucial thing is I'm lifting the wood. My will interposes itself between God and the lifting of the little chunk of wood into the back of my car. Concurrence. Third, government. This has to do with the intention that I have and the intention that God has. Now, this is, this is the point which is really important to grasp if we're to understand how it is that God can be sovereign over something and be doing something good, whereas I'm actually doing something, and I'm doing something evil. The reason is God's intention, God's goal in sovereignly bringing about this action is different than mine. Government is the place where the moral quality of the action intrudes. I put this chunk of wood in the back of the car so I could throw it at somebody on the way home. The Lord didn't have that intention to cause pain in mind. And you see the difference. In, and the best example of this, and this is the canonical example really, is just to think about the crucifixion of Jesus. 
What happened in the, let's take Pontius Pilate as an example. What happened with Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate sinned, yes? Right, obviously he did. You've got a cowardly governor who knows that Jesus is innocent, and he's under pressure, and he's a fairly weak ruler, and Rome is on his case the whole time, and he's got this annoying, rowdy crowd, doesn't know what to do with them, so he basically literally washes his hands, Matthew 27, and says, like, you do whatever you want with him. Now, what's going on there? Preservation. The Lord is preserving Pilate in existence, which is good. Like, Pilate's being is good, aside some of you now want to know, does that mean the being of Satan is good? Talk to me later. Yes. Existence is a good. Preservation. Concurrence. And Pilate says, pass the soap. <laughs> Notice, Pilate says, pass the soap. God didn't say, pass the soap. Wash your hands. Take him and crucify him. God didn't say that, Pilate did. Pilate's will, that aspect of his, who he is that is responsible for moral choices, it was his moral choice. And what's the aim? Just think now, this is where the moral quality of what Pilate is doing diverges so dramatically from what the Lord is doing. What's the Lord doing? And what's Pilate? Well, Pilate is basically trying to get rid of that troublesome Jewish guy who everyone is hassling him about. And you think, oh, why don't they want Barabbas? Oh, Crucify Jesus. Okay, fine, whatever you want. Just for a quiet life, just to get myself sorted out and hopefully stabilize my rule, quote unquote. That's what he's trying to do. Coward. What's the Lord doing? The Lord is bringing to its fulfillment the most awe inspiringly wise, courageous, and morally good action in the whole history of the cosmos. The self-giving of the incarnate second person of the Trinity for our sins. That's what God's doing. You notice government, right? Government in the sense of the goal towards which they're aiming could not be further apart. So is God sovereign over what Pilate did? Yes, absolutely sovereign. He preserves him, he concurs with and gives causative power to his actions. But what Pilate is trying to do and what the living God is trying to do are poles apart, which is why... The living God can be doing good even when a human being is doing evil. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph and his brothers, remember? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see? So somehow, goodness gracious, are, are we to believe that somehow this lawless one's activity is for good? Yes. It, it may be that we can't understand it. It probably likely is. I mean, Romans 9, Pharaoh. I raised you up for this purpose that my power might be displayed in all the earth. God is always doing good in the big picture. And God is the only one who can see the big picture. But of course, it brings back this troubling question, doesn't it? Because it's like... I. I would, I would love to know if there's a way of good being done so that I'm on the good side of it. <laughs> it's all very well, isn't it? Like, to know that God is doing good at every moment in history within the largest possible context is kind of comforting, provided you're not one of those who's perishing. And I don't know all of you very well. I, 
it's always a pleasure to see uh, visitors in here. And, uh, I know that sometimes what happens is that somebody who's, you might not be sure what you believe, or you might be pretty sure you don't believe in Jesus, you, but for some other reason, like maybe you just love your relatives or something, um, you just came along. Maybe, maybe, you just, maybe you're here because you're basically a bit kind of confused and you, you're asking questions, and it's, I'm really glad you're here to ask questions, because today the question I can answer for you in the remaining 15 or 20, 30 minutes, I'm joking, Five, five, five minutes is, well, what do you have to do to display the glory of God in a way that does you good as well? And the answer is you avoid the mistake that this guy made. And what he did was he, quote, refused to love the truth. Do you see that? End of verse 10. Those who refuse to love the truth are those whom God uses in that way that he used Pontius Pilate and Pharaoh and Ananias and all those who are with him and countless people today. A shrinking number today, actually, because the church is growing faster than the world's population, praise God, but still a significant number. Now just look with me. I'm picking up my Bible then realising I can't read it. Um, Verse 10 with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because. You notice the interposition of the human decision here? It's not that God is dependent on the human decision, it's that it's inserted here in the sort of logical chain of what God is doing. They refuse to love the truth. And then verse 12, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. In formal terms, the the cause of their perishing, the moral cause, pardon me, of their perishing is their refusal to believe and, interestingly, to love the truth. Loving the truth. Loving the truth is what we need to do. And I, I was just chewing this over this and making a wooden bowl yesterday morning, trying to concentrate, and it's kept coming back into my head. Why love the truth? Why not just believe the truth? I mean, isn't that enough? Those of you who are parents, of course, know, as one of my friends and fellow pastors in this denomination has said, with children, you want them not to just follow the standard, but to love the standard, to love the Word of God. We've all heard Pastor Wilson talk about that, right? Very helpful. turns out we need to love everything that is good, including the truth. And it's fascinating here that the, the truth is sort of generalized. Notice Paul doesn't specify what the truth is. Maybe it reflects the fact that at different times in our lives, we are confronted with different true things that we need to believe. So for Paul to specify it would make it irrelevant to most of us. what, What is the true thing that you now need to believe? No, that you now need to love. Come to that in a second. And also then second, of course, um, the truth... I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's talking about a person. In Christian theology and in Christian piety, all of the abstract virtues found in other moral systems are personalized. Um, If if you're a podcast listener, not to the All Saints podcast, you wouldn't hear this on the All Saints podcast, you probably noticed that Stoicism is making a comeback. Marcus Aurelius and all those guys... And it's like it's got something in it. But it's a 
twisted, depersonalized version of a Christian virtue, of long-suffering. And long-suffering is oriented towards people, and it's a personal quality, not stoicism, which is almost like trying to become impersonal, in a sense. So, so you take these together, okay? We, we are to love the person who is the truth. And whatever that person is confronting us with right now. So now a question for you to ask you. Like, do you love Jesus? And that's an easy question. Because at least you know what the answer is supposed to be. But here's a more difficult question. Do you love that thing that Jesus is now confronting you with, which is true and you wish it weren't? The, tr- the bit of the truth that's hard to swallow right now. Do you love the truth? Because that's the test about whether you love Jesus. It's not, you, can't, you can't say, yeah, I love Jesus. I love all the nice things he says about, you know, love your neighbor because it's kind of like, I, I love my neighbor, he's a nice guy. Um, but you don't love the thing that he's telling you today. That you've heard your big brother say, and you heard your mum say, and you heard some of your friends say, but you're like, yeah, 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 but. You know, but. But. No buts, thank you. Um, th- example, Ananias. So go back to this high priest guy. Let's imagine that Dr. Jordan is right, which I think he probably is. Imagine that Ananias is the lawless one. What's he supposed to do? Well, what's the truth for him? The truth for him is, hey, high priest, the great high priest is here. Take off the robe. Take off that turban and that big fancy gold plate that says holy to the Lord on it that you're so proud of. And bow before him. Isn't that, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be a magnificent narrative? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If, if Ananias had done that, he'd be like, every schoolboy should be your hero, really. Shouldn't he? And, and we'd all say, yeah, Anan- I would have done that. If I'd been Ananias, I would have, in public and with great ceremony taken off my turban and my robes and bowed the knee before the Messiah so everybody could see and you don't get to do that. What you do is you get to bow the knee in private. You get to humble yourself where nobody can see and nobody will be telling stories about how wonderful you are. Well, at least least you don't have the horrible temptation of being proud of your humility. You get to just be humble. And love the truth. I don't know whether this is right. I'm trying to think... Why, why does love orient us rightly towards another person? I think one aspect is when, when you love a person, you love what you become in their presence. Think about that for a second. Yeah, and couples, when they first meet each other, this is obvious to you. Right? And, and falling in love, what you're, what's actually happening is you, you, you love whatever it is that gets ignited within you when you see or you talk to that man or that woman, your, your first child or any of your children, <laughs> um, when you hold her in your arms, what you, you love her means, among other things, means you love what you're feeling and what you are. And, and when you're with other adults, this is one of the reasons why you can choose to love, even those who are unlovely, because you can, to a certain extent, control how you respond to somebody else, can't you? Why, why, do you, why do you really hit it off with some guys and some ladies in the congregation? Why do you really hit it off with each other? It's because 
you, you like what you become when you're around that man or that woman. And actually, we can control that to a certain extent. But here's the thing. What, what do you become when you're around Jesus? Well, Jesus has a way of dividing, doesn't he? He's, he's either you're going to humble yourself before the one who will tell you the truth unflinchingly, or they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So the challenge to us all is to fall in love with the plain, unvarnished, brutally honest truth that is Jesus and that perhaps for one or two of you, Jesus is saying afresh to you right now. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, thank you for a saviour who is doesn't just speak, but who is the truth. Humble us before him. May we embrace him and come to love him precisely because we would rather be humbled than proud, rather hear the truth that he speaks to us than stand in denial against it. And we pray in his name. Amen.